So this week, the big news seems to me is the California recall. And of course, we refused to write about it. We failed to write about it. We, of course, we wrote about it previously. And there was no, you know, great takeaway in terms of the recall, other than that California's definitely would rather have the Democrat Newsom than, uh, than Larry Elder, I think. And it probably helped Newsom to be able to run against Larry Elder, to be able to run against someone. You know, he won with basically two thirds against the recall, one third in favor of the recall. And it's interesting to me that I think this recall is going to be helpful to California, at least in a pragmatic, the government will be more representative of the people way, in that the people got to speak out. The people got to say something. And what they said is, no, we don't want to recall Newsom. Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Vircolo, and on this weekend podcast, I'm here to help Paul run through the big stories of the week, many of which appeared on thisiscommonsense.org. Thisiscommonsense.org is the website Paul's been writing for since 1999. So Newsom has more life than he had before. And let's remember, I hear a lot of reports on the news uh, about, you know, that, that uh, what triggered the recall and so on. And obviously it was a multitude of things. And, and one of them was the, the harsh kind of crackdowns and lockdowns and mask mandates. I mean, at one point, of course, this may have been extra in LA, maybe it was uh, Garcetti or somebody who did it, the mayor there, but but you had to wear a mask riding your bike or, or maybe it was that you weren't allowed to go out and ride your bike, which of course would be a healthy thing to do that would help you overcome viruses. And when you're riding your bike, you're just not really breathing on people a whole lot. Uh, you may be breathing heavily, but you won't be breathing on other people. So anyway, there, there was that. But the biggest thing I think was the incident in the restaurant, I don't remember what the, the name of it was. It's kind of a funny name, but it very ritzy restaurant. And the governor, Gavin Newsom, and other lobbyists, you know, his wife's there, other people, pretty high political people in California are at, this is at a time in which people aren't supposed to be eating at restaurants. And they go to to a restaurant to celebrate, I believe it was his birthday, and they didn't wear masks, okay, and they weren't supposed to go to the restaurant, okay, I mean, come on, we're sorry, except in his sorrow, his deep contrition for that, you know, for basically ordering other people to do something that he intended to just violate. He said, we were socially distanced, and we were outside. And the problem with that is there's then there was video footage showing them not at all socially distanced, unless they thought, you know, arm around the next person or, you know, two, two inches away was socially distanced. They weren't six feet away. There was no distance whatsoever. And they were inside, not outside. And of course, people who I think have followed this 
coronavirus and have kind of just tried to, you know, think about what makes sense to do or not do. I mean, most people I think now are not still, you know, sterilizing their hands every seven seconds. It's probably always a good thing to wash your hands, but it's it's the kind of thing where if you've if you've watched this virus, it has not been outside that it's been spreading. If you remember early on, there was the spring break in Florida and oh my goodness, that was a horrible thing. And maybe at this point, they finally have traced a single episode of COVID-19 to, you know, that event, that super spreader event. But I knew that six months, eight months afterwards had nothing. And it was because one, because these are young people who, you know, are, are better at fighting viruses, better at doing anything that's going to take physical abilities. And they were outside. They weren't inside. This restaurant, you know, just hypocrisy. And then on top of that, the ability to lie as you're apologizing for it, to make it seem not as bad, it just, it hurt him. And that's what caused this recall. But, you know, when I look at recall, historically, California has recalled one governor. Gray Davis, 2003, and everyone screamed it was a terrible thing, that somehow it was anti-democratic that you have a vote on the guy that you've put in the governor's seat and decide whether you want to keep him or not. And it just seems to me that don't we want that everywhere? Don't we wish that that would break out in Moscow and that that would break out in Beijing and that that would break out throughout Asia, Africa, North America, every city. You know, we've got plenty of cities in this country that don't have any process like that, plenty of states. This is basic democracy that the people rule and it it has not been used willy-nilly. Here, it will have a positive effect for the governor, which will show people again, you know, life is kind of a learning experience. And it will show people that, you know, don't take on a governor if, if it's you're going to only make him more powerful and powerful. Why? Powerful because he's shown that the public likes where he's going, at least likes where he's going better than they like the alternative. And that's a positive thing. That's the point. That's the that's the bloody point of all this. Is for the people to be able to affect what's happening politically, it's our government. And so now I'm, I see, of course, the same people who complained about the Gray Davis recall, who bitched and moaned that, oh, the next governor will have less support than this governor. And we wrote about this during that recall. Everyone was, oh, this is terrible. And it wasn't just Democrats, there were a number of Republicans George Will, other people, it's just crazy. You know, you can't put someone in and then yank them out. Well, you know, if the majority of people want them out, but in that election, of course, Schwarzenegger ended up getting more votes than Gray Davis and Gray Davis lost. Here, of course, you know, if if, uh, Newsom's going to get two thirds of the vote saying don't recall, you know, of course, Elder or whoever's not going to beat him. But as we pointed out in the commentary that we did a couple of weeks ago 
um, recall, what was it? Uh, recall legal scholars. But there's this whole argument that somehow this is anti-democratic because the recall vote is this number, which they don't get recalled unless it's a majority who want them recalled, who want them gone. If there's a majority, then it goes to a plurality, just like the governor could have been elected in the first place by a plurality, because most of our elections are first past the post. And there are a way to deal with those. You know, you can do ranked choice voting. You can, there, there's all kinds of ways to deal with that problem. Uh, but somehow to, you know, to complain that this is somehow unconstitutional. And it's, it's ridiculous because, of course, both elections are separate elections and the voters win. And, and so you, let's make them better if you want to make them better. But if you're bemoaning the basic use of democracy, then, you know, you're full of it. This is you, you've got a different agenda in mind. And of course, I suspect if there was a recall right now of DeSantis in Florida or Abbott in Texas to Republican governors, you'd see people kind of flip on what, what's good about the recall or not good about the recall. And this is a place where we let the power structure yank us around instead of us through things like recall and initiative and having more choices, order them around because we're the boss. And, and, and that is, if we look at this in partisan terms, we're making a big mistake. We want the majority, whether we're part of it or not, to be able at any time to say, Mr. Politician, you're out. That's the, that's the tradition I would want in any sort of government. Mr. Politician with the power, we the people can take you out at any time. If that's the case, then in a very real way, we live in a free society where the people really do rule. And if the argument is, oh, no, 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 well, we can't do that because it's just too, it's too unwieldy. It's so crazy. We're gonna throw someone out we just elected. We're gonna have to choose from this big list of candidates. And of course, you could always change California's process in, in all kinds of ways that, would you know, we can argue them, we can talk about them, and we can let the people decide. And, uh, and that's the bottom line. But, but if you look at, at the history of it, one governor recalled. This is the only recall since then. This governor's not recalled. Okay, sometimes it goes one way, sometimes it goes the other. It's helpful, as I've already explained. But listen to what an article in the New York Times has to say about it. As California votes, it rethinks its tradition of direct democracy. And trust me, <laughs> I, I don't think I even have to poll. Californians are not rethinking their tradition of direct democracy. They like it. They like it across the board. The initiative process and recall in every poll I've ever seen everywhere in the country is popular. But initiative and recall in these, these sorts of direct democracy, you know, what programs, uh, uh, abilities that citizens have are significantly more popular, even though they're popular in places where they don't have them and don't see them used all the time, they're significantly more popular in places where they are used, meaning 
the more the public sees it and feels it and is part of it, the more they like it. So no, they're not rethinking it in California, but folks at the New York Times and folks in universities and all over the political structure, they're rethinking it because they've always wanted to get rid of it. They're rethinking it for about a second and then having some angle to say, oh, because there was a recall where the guy wasn't recalled, what a wasteful, oh, they can't stand. There's $287 million that was spent. Of course, California does have you know 38 million people, a bunch of people, I'm probably close. Not, I, I'm, I pulled that out of my head, let's say. It's certainly possible that it's a pretty expensive thing. I suspect I, if you gave me 287 million, I think I could beat, beat, beat the price and make a profit on it. But 287 million, none of these folks ever complain about any program that costs money. It's always holding an election. That's the expense that somehow is just too much and it's bunk. But here's what, um, what they say about, they complain about all the same things that we talked about it in a common sense a couple of weeks ago. They complain about having a referendum that to change this system in a sharp piece of political irony, they write, it will take a referendum to decide whether to change this particular referendum. And what they're talking about is maybe doubling the number of signatures you'd have to get to get on the ballot. And one of their complaints is it costs a lot of money to run a campaign to get 12 percent of the of the people who voted for governor to sign a petition, a legal petition, have their name checked. They always get many more because they have to be safe. Most campaigns that make it and lots don't because it's a lot of signatures and a lot of costs to get those signatures. And they want to double it a little more than double it to 25%. And their argument is, well, there's too much money somehow in the process. So they raise the cost so that more grassroots groups can't do it. And it's only going to be the province of very wealthy, powerful, already organized groups from the teachers unions on the left to the chamber of commerce on the right. And of course, when it comes to things like initiative and referendum, the teachers union and the chamber of commerce are together against that sort of basic democracy that most people just instinctively say, yes, of course, we should have that. Um, so we're going to see attacks on recall. If it has to go to the ballot, the voters will stop it. But And, and it does have to go on the ballot. And that's the very thing that the New York Times complains about. Years ago, I did a column in a I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure what the name of it is. I just thought of it. I didn't think to go check, and um, and maybe we can provide a link. But there was a billionaire, and and he, he's known. I can't think of his name. I want to say Brugerson or something. But he's he's uh, I think Scandinavian. He made a billion dollars. He flies around the world. He has all kinds of great ideas, and he had a campaign called Think California. And one of the arguments for why you needed to change the initiative process is because the voters had done all this stuff. They passed so many amendments. There's, the Constitution's so big and so on. And of course, when you then look at it, you find out, oh, wait a second. Um, you know, two thirds of those amendments were the, were the 
legislature's amendments that they put up. That wasn't the initiative process. And the length of, of the Constitution isn't, isn't being pushed by the initiative process. It's being pushed by the legislature and them putting things up. And of course, it was they spend too much money. These same people who, who love to spend money usually through government, they have a problem that the initiative spends too much money. And then we find out that 82% of the money spent on the ballot, in other words, voters saying, yes, we approve this spending, was put on the ballot by the legislature. So this is the nature of the attacks on it. Anyway, this group, Think California, I believe was the name, they come up with different changes to make the process more difficult for citizens. At the same time, they decided it'd be a good idea to have an eminent, uh, a, a, a kind of a board of really eminent people, meaning really important, well thought of, you know, elite type people. Um, and of course, if you were gonna, if you're gonna get those politically, you know, we, we see some of that, that's not always great either. Um, but what an idea that the billionaire suggests we ought to have a group of really elite people and they be able to put up to 20 measures on a ballot. That was one of the other problems. There's too many things to vote on, but they'd be able to put up to 20 measures on the ballot. When the media complains about democracy, you know that real democracy is breaking out. Then you see that it's, it's also the university political science professors, by and large, uh, not all of them, thank goodness, so I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but generally are going to be in favor of everything done by experts. The uh, deep state is for everything done by experts. Big government science is for everything done by experts. These are all the experts. And of course, they're for that. So, um, and of course, they hate the initiative process, which would say that people really do, not just on which expert they elect to office, but on actual policy, actual law, that we peons would be able to have an equal vote with those traveling billionaires. That's what they fear. I see that on Monday, you have a piece called Ballots, Barriers, and Buncombe. And that wasn't about California, but it is about ballots. And it's, a, it's on a related subject. Did you want to talk about that at all? In uh, Georgia, and it's, very, it's an interesting situation, in Georgia, Probably the man in the middle is Brad Raffensperger, who I actually got to meet yesterday. And uh, he's the guy who basically said Georgia's elections were done, you know, well. We think that they are fair. I mean, he doesn't say there was no problem anywhere, but just that, you know, he certified the election. No, it wasn't marred by fraud, so on and so on. Uh, that made him persona non grata in Republican circles. So he's kind of a man without a country. Well, he came out strongly, although he's a very soft-spoken guy, but very, very good on this issue. And it's an issue that he didn't just bump into yesterday. He's pushed for non-citizens not to be able to be on governing boards, other issues like that. 
and and from a position of we love immigration this is a nation of immigrants and we love it but if you want to vote in the election please become a citizen and have every right to vote but you got to join to you know if you want to make the the team's rules you gotta you gotta join the team and of course that could probably be made easier and that's something that he would support and and uh groups like americans for citizen voting support but he's come out in favor of a constitutional amendment here senator greg dolezal introduced one back in 2019 that amendment was defeated on a straight party line vote by you know it needed three democratic votes in the senate didn't get them you know, it's a pretty clear issue and the media's coverage, the media kind of being on the Democrat side is that, well, this is already pretty much covered, but it's not covered as we keep pointing out. And, and one news report uh, uh, of the press conference that was held, uh, one of the news reports was all about, but it's unclear how many non-citizens voted in Georgia's election and, and so on. And of course, it's, it's not about how many non-citizens are voting in Georgia's election. It's whether cities can give non-citizens the vote uh, with a simple vote of the city council, as the city in Georgia has attempted to do. And it's about whether the legislature could at any time, eight weeks before an election, maybe maybe three weeks, I don't know, but certainly the legislature could pass a law that says non-citizens can vote. There's nothing that stops them unless you put it in the Constitution. And then they have to come to the people to change that policy. And, you know, look, if the people vote that, no, we don't, we want the policy to be what it is. Well, then, of course, that's the other option. And if that's how the people vote, that's how the people vote. But it, it ought to be decided, again, by the people. Not by, you know, we'll wait and later see if some city can do it and then someone sues or the state legislature does it in, you know, in a certain election where they think it'll help them. That's not how you want your government to, to function. That would be bad if there's, you know, and we've seen some of that type stuff. That's not good. It makes people feel very uneasy. Why not just put it in the people's hands? That's the whole point of a constitution is to say these things are only changeable by going back to the people. Joe, I think you're such hot shots and kind of aren't very popular, at least collectively, and frankly, usually not very individually either. But this show is the people's, and we don't make every decision, but we make the, the key decisions on basic structure of the government and look, let the people of Georgia decide, do they want this to be added to the basic structure of government or do they not? It should be their decision. So it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But what this piece is all about is that new groups have formed Asian American, Pacific Islander. Uh, this is the, the racial group that's on forms and so on. And, and the argument, this is the group that's done a lot of the studies of hate crimes and so on, which a lot of them, you know, aren't verified in any way, shape or form. And some of them that are verified, it's, you know, someone shunned someone else, and, you know, or, or, you know, did some microaggression. 
Uh, and it's not to make light of, you know, anytime there's violence against anybody for any reason, it's, it's gotta be stopped. And, uh, and, and that's what, you know, that's the whole point of government. So I'm all for that. And it's, it's kind of, to me, extra sickening. I'm not for extra criminalization because I, I think that's, that's not the point of having police protect people who are being threatened. Let's not figure out the politics of it. Just go protect them. But as a citizen, I have a right to kind of think you're even slimier if it's some weird, you know, I, I hate all women. You know, I don't like guys who kill people. Uh, it doesn't matter why, you know, unless it's to save someone else and some gallant, you know, thing. But if you did it because you hate all women, you know, I even like you less. And if you did it because you hate Asians or you hate you did a crime because you hate blacks or you hate whites, I really think that's extra sick. So, um, so there's that. But they came out against Raffensperger and his call for putting citizen voting in the Constitution. And in their news release, condemning him, that was the word they used, condemn him for advocating this. And yet when it came to it, they, they admit that the right, it's the, the right of naturalized citizens to vote making it clear that they're not arguing in favor of non-citizens voting. Well, then what did he say that was not, not right? And they, but, but they, they kind of act like he's being anti-immigrant when of course, and they, they always change it. They start out and they'll talk about non-citizens, but then they talk about, but immigrants should be able to vote. Well, of course, immigrants should be able to vote. Again, we're a nation of immigrants, but they should be able to vote when they become citizens. When, when they're immigrants in the sense of, okay, I've, I've you know, filled out the paperwork and stuff and made the decision to be here, not just come here to take a job. And you know, these sorts of, it, it seems to me that it's also helpful to just be clear on, on some basic ground rules in this world, because so many people, I think, just feel that our political process has, has started to really destabilize their lives in ways that they're not really very happy about. And we've been encouraged not to be happy against each other because we're both able to use powerful politicians to screw up the other people through ridiculous governmental actions. And you know, the more we could tame government the, the less, I think, we'd be at each other's throats, the less we'd be afraid. And when we're afraid, you know, we don't always make the best decisions. Well, it sounds like this is a case where people are complaining and they don't really have any grounds for complaint, but they want to make a big noise anyway. This is sort of a dog whistle that it's racist, suppressive, xenophobic. It's an attack on Raffensperger for being like the worst terrible guy for advocating something that they seem to agree with and for, I guess, not doing six or eight other things. But the whole point of it is to attack this as if what they even agreed is the way it should be because we said it. They agree, but somehow we should have shut up or something or somehow 
to take two seconds to say, you know, I've seen legislatures move pretty quick on stuff they want. I know they always talk about it, it has to go through all this process. And, and I'm all for the process. The process protects us. We the people. We've got time to see what our legislature is doing. I don't mind the process too much. I kind of think it's usually on my side, but um, because it slows them down. But they when when they do something like this, they could do it so quickly. It's it's and and the public would the public be up in arms? No, because the public. This is so simple. It's what everyone thought it was anyway. It's only because we're in this sort of bizarre, you know, vicious political battle that there are going to be pushes to have non-citizens vote, and it becomes an issue. And and it's almost like the the CRT of voting in that. They act like, oh, it's not an issue. It's all settled, but it's not settled. And oh, well, we agree they shouldn't do anything. They're not doing that, but that's good. You know, it's it's that's what they say about CRT. We're not we're not teaching it. Oh, but we are teaching it. It's really important that we teach it. Um, and with with citizen voting, it's well, that's not happening and can happen, but it really should happen. And here's why. And of course, it is being attempted here, here, and here. And there are. You know, we're in double digits in cities around the country. And it's look, it's I think we have, you know, bigger threats. <laughs> I would say, you know, we have nuclear weapons aimed at us and stuff. It's, it's you know, and as the world goes, it's, you know, none of the folks who are talking about this are talking about it. And, you know, oh, the, the world is going to end. This is somehow out, I'm, I can't say it. It comes to me and I can't apolect. No, no, no. What is it? Are you looking for apocalyptic? Apocalyptic, yes, that is what I'm, apocalyptic. No one's talking about this as if, you know, the world's gonna come to an end, tomorrow the country will be, you know, taken over by non-citizens. It's, it's, this isn't fear of non-citizens as much as it's fear of our own political process that would trade a citizen and, and kind of create a situation in which who found the, these new voters who aren't really haven't said they want to join, and and that's all I think that that well it's all Americans for citizen voting is looking for. It's all this Georgia measure would do. It's all the measures you know last uh, November it passed seventy nine percent in Florida. You know Florida is not exactly uh, you know it's a very diverse uh, population. And it won in all kinds of very diverse places in Florida. Um, you don't get 79% in, you know, in, uh, among one demographic. And, and, and so it's the basic idea, I think, of, well, who, you know, if you're going to have universal suffrage, where does, where does that end? Is universal suffrage worldwide suffrage? Is it anybody who's here, you know, when you, when you buy a Coke in a, in a different city, do you get a little partial vote for that, for that money? And, and of course, the other thing that I find interesting is the argument that this is basic, uh, no tax taxation without representation. And if you, if you believe that, then of course, this isn't about local voting. This is about voting at the state level and the federal level because you're being taxed more as as any person residing in this country. Um, 
you're being taxed more by the state and the federal government than you're being taxed by the local government a lot of times. And, and certainly you're being taxed to a significant degree. And so shouldn't you get a vote there? And again, the folks who see it as only citizens should vote say, well, no, because you're not a citizen and please join. You know what? There's no fee. And, and there is, it is a costly process. I'm sure because a lot of times you're hiring people and you're, you're doing it. We should fix that. We should fix that as much as we possibly can get our government to not make it onerous, not create bureaucratic nightmares. There's going to be some time period, but there's enough bureaucracy in it from what I hear from people who go through it. There's enough bureaucracy that they could sure stop all the bureaucracy or at least a chunk of it and make it easier for people to become citizens. That's my view. But however we decide as a democracy and the more we decide instead of they and Washington decide the better, but um, however we decide someone becomes the citizen, that's who gets to vote. And if you, if you believe the taxation without representation is that you know, monolithic in every case, well then, you know, you, you go to a city and, and buy a Coke and, and you ought to get one, you know, 427 gazillion, you know, percent of the vote in the next mayoral election. Well, you wrote four other pieces last week or this week, I should say, and uh, which is the second full week of September, 2021. Did you want to talk about any of those at length or do we just want to let let people know what they are. I want I want people to go read them right now. Don't don't put your wife saying you got to go. Your husband's going. Hey, come on, stop listening. Makes sense to me. Just say, hey, look, I got now. I got to go to the links. We also talked. I'm trying to pull up the title so that I don't screw them up. We also talked, like we do all the time, about we live in a in a country in which things are censored. And uh, we had two pieces this week where we talked about one. And, and do you have the title in front of you? Tuesdays was our non-know-it-all censors. This was Dave Rubin being canceled in part. And uh, who's the other guy? The Mr. Obvious. Mr. Obvious. And basically, you know, what they did is they were suggesting that Biden was going to have vaccine mandates. And so, of course, that had to be shut down. What kind of misinformation and what kind of, you know, oh, I mean, that's obviously misinformation, of course, until Biden announced the vaccine mandates. And for the president of the United States to say any company that has 100 employees or more has to, you know, demand their employees be vaccinated, that's a vaccine mandate. It's not just the federal government which would be a heck of a big step for the, for the president to do if he demanded vaccines to work at the federal government. I wonder if that even fits in the sort of union, you know, cobwebs that are all over our laws as far as the federal workforce. But it would be interesting. But to, to say private employers of 100 people or more, that's absolutely outrageous. I don't know where on earth he gets that power. I'd sure like to know where. And I sure hope it goes to court. But, but you know, we, we've seen again and again, it's a conspiracy theory and no one should talk about, you know, the Wuhan lab leak possibility. And people are censored for it on major 
social media networks with government encouraging it. And that was the other one we had this week to talk about uh, Jen Psaki's and, and, uh, and Biden's you know, collusion, the Biden administration colluding with Facebook and Twitter and, and others on what should be censored and, and actively trying to get them to censor people. And that's the colluder in chief. And that was on Wednesday. And uh, that's also about litigation against the measures, the, the, the activity of the administration. Yes. The interesting thing to me, a few years ago, I, I kind of came to the conclusion that the courts, the federal courts, as much as I've lost in federal court uh, with different issues personally, uh, I'm not, a, you know, I mean, you'd think I wouldn't be a fan. And, and I'm not saying that, oh, they're so wonderful, but it's the only branch of government that isn't completely outside its lane that has some measure of independence from the political process in a way that none of our states have. None of our state courts have any measure of independence from politics. They are corrupt in that sense. They may be corrupt in some other senses too, but they're certainly corrupt in that sense. That's, that's, I haven't worked with, in every state with and had experience with the courts. That is my universal belief until shown otherwise from every experience I have had in of any sort with any state court. So people can read about that on the Wednesday piece. And uh, it's about a campaign to a legal campaign to curb the overreach of the president administration. And, and pointing out the, the basic truth here, which is it's one thing for private businesses to set certain rules and enforce those. And, and you know, that's only fair. Now, if they enforce them in a fraudulent way, which I think you could argue, uh, uh, then you might have a, a case in court against them. But they have certain rights. The federal government in no way, shape or form, no one getting one nickel of federal money should be able to spend one second, one nanosecond of their time trying to get any social media or other media to take people down and to not publish their opinions. That is serious, serious stuff. And what's, what's so frightening is so much of our country doesn't recognize how serious that is. And people who usually have appreciation for the First Amendment and have appreciation for freedom uh, have some suddenly become kind of faux libertarians who, oh no, because they're, because they're private, they can do whatever they want, even if they're raking in billions in contracts from the federal government, even if the federal government is expending its resources to coordinate the suppression of speech. That's, this is serious, serious stuff. And the only thing frightening than that is that so many people don't recognize that it's serious stuff. I'd like to add that there are lots of people, like I believe Howard Stern, uh, who are actively calling for the suppression of ideas they don't like now. This, this, this person or that person should be booted off social media. I find it disgusting, especially from Howard Stern. Did he finally get off the crotch so he's no longer talking about people's crotches? Because that lasted, what, 15 years or something and, and millions and millions of dollars. He enjoys his, uh, his vulgar sense of humor. And, and I'm not saying that I 
don't find a place for in the world. He's been funny. He's been he he has been funny. That's true. But I find I find this recent uh, call for censorship, especially for someone who has made his living by pushing the edge of what radio can do. And isn't he booted off into orbit? Isn't he in a satellite system now? He is on satellite, but he's got a, a pretty big audience, I think. Um, I don't think anybody had as big as Rush Limbaugh, but I think Howard Stern had a pretty big audience. And uh, and I think I think booted may not be right. I think it may be how much? How many millions? If you look at it, this week was largely dominated by initiative and referendum recall, basic direct democracy of citizens, um, which is a good thing and is a needed weapon in the people's arsenal, and uh, and the suppression of speech in really profound ways. Uh, you know, and, and people shouldn't forget, and this one, you know, the media has a right to do it. But, uh, you know, the, the Hunter Biden laptop two weeks, three weeks before an election that much of the media, including the government media like NPR, decides they aren't going to cover it because, of course, it's just a Russian, you know, uh, disinformation and then has former deep state top of the CIA national security advisors with security clearances that Trump yanks uh, for a short bit, but we're back. And they are on TV saying, yes, this is disinformation. They haven't a clue that it is. They said it just because they wanted to say it. And, uh, and the media repeated it. And the media is not sorry. And they're not sorry. Clapper and, and company. And, uh, oh, what a, and, and that's part of, um, you know, a lot of us, not just other people, but myself, didn't like Trump's language and his crudeness and so on, uh, as we saw it. And uh, but but you've you've got the same the same thing with these folks who would go out and lie in a political campaign. You've been head of the CIA, you know. You've been at the top of the U.S. deep state intelligence, and you're going to go out and lie in a political campaign. That's the country we live in now. Yeah, I think it's the country we've lived in for a long time, but now it's become obvious to anyone who looks. But what they're trying to do is make sure that many people don't see. Because I know that I have, I have relatives, I have relatives who had no clue that Biden had any corruption charges against him or any uh, sexual misconduct charges against him. They just didn't know because their ambit of information didn't include it. Yeah. The other thing is that the corruption that, that appears to be there from what's come off the, the Hunter's laptop is pretty serious stuff that implicates Joe Biden, too. And nobody knows that because it's never really been discussed much in, in mainstream media. They're not interested in going to find it. And that's the, the media overall is going through some tough times. And, and you know, a lot of journalists have, have lost their jobs. A lot of the print media has gone out of existence. And, um, and so there's not as much investigative stuff. And I think that that has also fed into more of a hyper partisanship because you need to align to get those, you know, get, get an audience. And, and in essence, uh, most of the people I think that go into journalism are gonna tend to lean left. Well, our schools lean left. 
And, um, and it, you know, it's, 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 I think much more, if you go into business, if you lean left, you're probably going to be pushed right. And, um, and if you spend all your day talking to, you know, bureaucrats and, and, uh, and professors and politicians, you're probably going to lean to the left. Well, leaning left was the other piece of the week, party like it's Versailles. And we can just mention, everybody kind of knows what that's about. If you just mention it, it's the, it's the uh, great dresses that appeared at the Met Gala. And you talked about that, uh, you know, in the usual 250, 260 words. And I think people I, I think it's, it's a, a funny, funny story. story. It is a funny story. It is a funny story. And I think people will like that. I, I encourage them to go read it. You know, a picture uh, says a thousand words. And uh, AOC is a smart marketer, a very pretty woman. And, you know, tax the rich is a very popular slogan. And the only one of those that I want to change is to make it to where tax the rich is not a popular slogan. You know, Biden's now talking about more than doubling the number of IRS agents that are somehow going to go after the really rich. Well, that whole gala was the really rich, which more power to them. We're Americans. We're free. We can be anything we want. We don't have to hold it against somebody who has more money than us. We're enjoying life. Are they enjoying it as much? If not, then who cares how much money they have? And in fact, if they are enjoying it more and money is what does it, well, then maybe we better go work a little harder and focus more and uh, find a way to make money. This whole anti-rich is, it's not just kind of rotten because it's envious and it's, it's you know, it, it, it's a bad way to think. But it also, it's dangerous. You know, you, you almost would have expected her to have an eat the rich, uh, which you see sometimes in graffiti and, and other stuff and slogans. That's, that's where, you know, you could make a heck of a case that that's where that kind of thinking leads you. And uh, it, it's, we, we ought not demonize people who somehow found a way to help a whole lot of people and to make a whole lot of money from doing it. And, you know, I mean, I cursed Bill Gates at, at Microsoft and, and, uh, and I, you know, I complained when I had, a, had the Mac and I, I have an iPhone, I complain about that. But, you know, I don't have any trouble seeing how they got rich and I don't have any trouble that they did get rich. It's, it's only people who somehow got rich unfairly and then let's find out what crime they committed and, and prosecute. Um, but, but that's, that's also become, it used to be kind of a tiny, tiny slice of folks on the left who thought that was cool. And it's become a much bigger slice and it, it is frightening. It doesn't get talked about because it's the left. And so most of the media isn't going to talk about it, but it's, it's a, it's a scary thing. And it, it seeps in. It's, it's, it, when you badmouth people for being something, especially for being something that I, I think in like 99% of the cases is something to be applauded and, and ends up, of course, in the great, you know, Adam Smith's invisible hand ends up helping so many other people. So anyway, that it's a, that's the good note is that, is that the truth is we still have everything going for us in, in terms of of 
you know, there most people I think still get how the economy goes, and and I think we still have so many, you know, attributes as a society and the ability to avoid the the great void in <laughs> the uh, the chasm. The uh, anyway, uh, but and and I know you you're probably a little more negative about that, but but uh, I think we have it all. It's but you see us headed toward it in all kinds of ways. Well, in your piece, you mention the elitist element wherein these people, these just three women we talked about, uh, I guess the two in addition to uh, AOC, uh, paraded about in their fancy or weird costumes and without masks, well, attended by a chorus line of attractive young women in black masks. That's the picture for today. I don't know if you've seen the Thursday picture or not. Oh, I did. I did. Yeah, you're on the road. That's probably what people should hear that you're on the road. And that's one of the reasons the sound quality is a little bit odd. But uh, yes. And one of the reasons I, I, I actually did see the picture, but uh, I might not have seen the picture because I'm, I'm running around. The, the whole mass thing, too. I mean, Governor Whitmer in Michigan, her husband violated it. She violated it. Newsom violated it. Others have violated. Nancy Pelosi violated it. This is not good. It's instructive. They say don't sweat the small stuff, but that's for you personally. If you're looking at big government, look at the small stuff and it will tell you a lot. Well, there we are. That was the week that was for the second full week of uh, September 2021. You're on the road, but you'll be back next week in a slightly more controlled environment. Yes, well, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, it'll be nice to get home, though. Okay. Well, see you next week. Thanks, man. Well, that was another episode of This Week of Common Sense. As you can tell, there were some problems, technical problems, all the way through this episode. Video watchers on YouTube and other, maybe Rumble someday, uh, video watchers may note that we don't have a normal video product. There's nobody's face is talking on this piece because, well, Paul's video quality was so horrible. But in trying to mess with Paul's video quality, I got my own mixer wrong for my own voice, and so I had an echo throughout most of the presentation. So let's just say we had our issues. One place got so bad that I had to get rid of, in the edits, uh, the discussion of Friday's piece, which was the 6% solution. So the 6% solution is available on thisiscommonsense.org, and you, you can go look it up. It's Friday the 17th. Now, what else is there that we need to talk about? Uh, Paul couldn't remember the name of the billionaire jet setter who set up uh, Think California, and the man's name was Nicholas Bergwin. And you can find Paul's essay on this at townhall.com or on his site, thisiscommonsense.org, under the title, Think Longer. Well, think thisiscommonsense.org for all you need to know about this podcast and about Paul's daily columns and uh, remember to hit like and subscribe and share with your friends and get PDFs of each uh, and every day's uh, commentary or subscribe to the commentary via email or there's all sorts of things you can do with this is commonsense.org to uh, keep in touch with Paul's special take on democracy which is a very liberty oriented democracy but it is democracy and he likes it and he explains why initiative rights, for instance, are so important. So keep on coming back. Share with friends. Hit like, subscribe, click the bell, whatever you have to do to keep in touch 
And next week, it'll be a normal video. And the audio quality will be better. So everything will be back to normal, I hope, next week.